Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, July 28th, 2020. I'm Nico. I'm your host. And we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. We're back, baby. We're back, you and I. As the great Paul Rudd once said on the YouTube series Hot Ones, hey, look at us. Look at us. We're back. Culture of the popular variety. I've missed you. Oh, how I've missed you. I have been all over the place, literally all over the place in my mental stability and in my physical location. I've been everywhere. All across this United States to land where Corona does not exist. (laughs) I have seen things you would not believe over the past two weeks, ladies and gentlemen. I've talked all about it on my other podcast. No need to get to that here. Instead, we're just talking Hollywood. The only thing I care about. You know, it's funny. I just had a conversation with Adam Hall, my co-host on Why Is This a Thing in Movie Hall of Fame. We were texting a few days ago because we hadn't seen each other in two weeks and he wanted to catch up on the news of today. Most of my friends will text me for that sole purpose. I mean, like, that's just the role that I serve in my friends' lives. You know, we don't talk about relationships. We don't talk about the future. We don't talk about life goals. We don't talk about self-betterment. We don't talk about the stuff you take to your grave. We talk about Taylor Swift albums. And look, I am proud to serve that role. I serve that role valiantly, and I have done so for the past 25 years on this planet. I have no regrets. But we're texting back and forth, and he's like, wow, it's been a very busy two weeks for you. And I said, yeah, a very busy two weeks for me. I've been to 13 states in 14 days. Kanye West declared his presidential candidacy, (laughs) dropped out of the race, re-entered the race, had a mental breakdown, was going to put out an album, didn't put out that album. Taylor Swift put out an album by mistake. Tenant gets delayed like three weeks. Emmy nominations are released and my childhood hero passed away. And I'm, you know, just unloading on Adam, right? (laughs) Just going on and on about what each of these events meant to me, giving my hot take as it were. And I I thought Adam gave the most uh, salient observation that I had heard thus far about these various news items. He just said in the year 2020, celebrities do not matter. And perhaps they never mattered before and will never matter again. But certainly in 2020, celebrities are the least important piece of news. And look, he's not wrong, but I still care. I still care a lot. And I have faith that you too care about the lives of these meaningless human beings. So that's what we're going to devote the next hour of our lives to. Shall we? Let's get into it. Man, we are jam-packed. Jam-packed. Uh, only the big items on today's program. Let's begin with this. Um, <laughs> right away, I'm going to humiliate myself on a podcast. Um, I, I've I've frequently been called an old soul. That's a thing that is said about me, mostly by people that are 30 years older than me. Not a lot of my peers have called me an old soul, but I'm sure on some level they understand that this is true. Um. I get along with people 
that are sometimes 10 to 20 to 30 years older than me better than I do people my age. It takes a very special person that is of the ages of like 22 to 26 to get on my level. There are very few people that do. And those that do, I cherish and I keep close. And uh, sometimes I host podcasts with them. And I'm sure many listen to this very podcast. Um, But like my core demographic is 55 and up. And it's always been that way. It's been that way as long as I can remember. I've always had great conversations and great relationships with my grandparents, with my aunts and uncles of that generation. I have a great relationship with my parents. And from a very young age, I I was having sort of adult conversations with my parents. Conversations, I assume, were not being had in most American households. In high school, I had really good relationships with my teachers. I had no interest in my peer group unless they had boobs. If you had boobs, I was interested. If you didn't have boobs, uh, sorry, I'm just going to talk to Mr. Johnson about the Cold War. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That was me. Now, I was called the nerd for that a lot, but I have always sort of identified or been identified as, uh, you know, beyond my years or at least seemingly beyond my years. That's not always true, but it is true often. Now, when you're nine years old and you have the taste of a 60-year-old man, no one tells you this, right? You are totally unaware that it's lame to listen to Stevie Wonder in the eighth grade. You never got the memo. No one judges you, and most importantly, you don't judge yourself. It's one of the freeing things about being a child. You listen to what you want to listen to, you watch what you want to watch, and it says nothing about your personal identity, You can do it without shame, and it's a wonderful thing, and in fact, in pop culture, we need more of that. It's a beautiful way of consuming art. Later on, you come to realize what it means to be a Grateful Dead fan, what it means to watch Star Trek, what it means to listen to Nirvana. It's just what you like. It's just what turns you on in the fourth grade. The first time I became self-aware of my own pop culture biases, I guess, or I guess uh, the existence of an older soul within me was when I was 16 years old, November 2011. Regis Philbin broadcast his final talk show with Kelly Ripa on ABC in the morning, nine o'clock. I think the date was November 18th. I checked this earlier, but I remember it being November because Thanksgiving was right around the corner. It was getting cold. And that night I had been invited to a high school party. (laughs) Now, here's the thing about my high school experience. I'm sure it was quite similar to yours. I didn't get invited to a lot of high school parties. I got invited to a few, but they were mostly like small get togethers that someone's parents had thrown And, you know, there was no alcohol being served at these parties. There was no sexual activity happening at these parties. They generally had just one sex, you know, invited. (laughs) You know, it was a unisex party in general. Um, But, you know, towards, I guess, my, what was the sophomore year? Maybe junior year was 2016 or 2011. I was 16, right? Yeah, because I graduated 2013. Yeah, so it wasn't like the first party, but it was one of the first parties. 
And it was at like a, it was a hall. It was a sweet 16 and two girls that I went to high school with had invited me. And it was, you know what, where it was, it was at the local VFW. And I remember that being a huge deal. Like, wait a minute, this is not at someone's house. We're going to a place. We're just a bunch of kids hanging out at a place. And (laughs) that's what it was. And there were like 50 friends there. And, uh, you know, it was high school. We were having a great time doing what high schoolers did. Um, but I showed up late to the party. I showed up late because that morning I had recorded Regis's final <laughs> live with Regis and Kelly show, his retirement show, his farewell show. Um, and I watched it after school and uh, I didn't get a chance until when the party started. So sorry, Jen, I'm going to be an hour late because I'm watching Regis. And by the way, I'm watching Regis alone and I am crying. I am crying hard. Um, I loved Regis Philbin. I loved him a lot. He was, in fact, my first childhood hero and perhaps my only childhood hero. Perhaps today, my only adult hero. Um, it's going to sound really silly. Mock me all you'd like. I know Regis has become a bit of a punchline. Perhaps he was always a bit of a punchline. But Regis was my guy. In 2004, my grandparents got DirecTV at their house. And on DirecTV was this channel called the Game Show Network. We didn't have cable at the time. We had whatever the basic cable you got by just plugging the plug into the wall i know like people under the age of 17 don't understand what this means <laughs> but used to just get channels by plugging it into the wall before there was a digital cable box my grandparents got direct tv 2004 and the game show network was offered on there and uh, i became obsessed with game shows at the age of nine um and that's the only network i watched once we got cable in 2005 or maybe it was 2006 that was the only channel i watched it was on all day classic game shows from the match game to password to the hundred thousand dollar pyramid and who wants to be a millionaire of course was one of those shows it was an iconic show that show changed television i know it's a cliche but that show and did change television it started this unscripted boom in the early 2000s where shows like survivor and uh and the bachelor and yes the apprentice were given considerable airtime and audiences responded quite enthusiastically. Obviously, American Idol was the number one show in the country. It was the biggest success story. But all of these unscripted shows were made possible because of the success of Millionaire. Networks realized that we can take modest amounts of money, but high production value and put it towards unscripted game shows and reality shows. And people will watch, they will take them seriously, and they will treat them as events. That's the key with who wants to be a millionaire. Um, And I obviously fell in love with these shows. I met Rob, my co-host on Two Cents Radio, because of our love of reality television. Uh, Reej and who wants to be a millionaire are a frequent conversation throughout our friendship. And, uh, you know, for all that's being said about Regis, for some reason, I still think his contribution to who wants to be a millionaire is a bit underrated. I don't think that show works with someone that is any less iconic, any less funny, but also any less classy. 
I mean, the millionaire format has been around for 20 years. Jimmy Kimmel just hosted a reboot on ABC um, and did a fine job. And Meredith Vieira after Regis also did a fine job. But there have been a lot of stinkers that have hosted Who Wants to Be a Millionaire over the years. Cedric the Entertainer, Terry Crews, the dude from The Bachelor. <laughs> um, I don't think that format is as uh, is as undefeated as many believe that it is. I don't think the format alone or uh, you know, the lights or the music or the hot seat alone can carry that show. I don't think it would have been the phenomenon it was if you didn't have someone with the credibility of Regis Philbin hosting it. Um, you know, if X celebrity, like uh, let's see, who was big in the early 2000s? Um, uh, let's say uh, Pauly Shore. <laughs> I guess that's not okay. Let's say this. Let's say Jeff Probst hosts who wants to be a millionaire in the early 2000s. Like, I think it's a cool show. I think people respond to the format. I think they like the set. I think they like the lights and I'm sure it gains a cult following and does well for itself and maybe has a 10 year daytime run, but it certainly doesn't attract 20 to 30 million eyeballs a week. Just doesn't. No one treats a studio game show like that, like an event. And that's what that show was. It was an event. It was must-see television. And there was something about the storied history of Regis Philbin. You know, he was the face of television, the face of live television. He had, the, as Donald Trump reminded us on Twitter this week, the most live hours logged of any broadcaster. He spent more live hours on television than anyone in the history of this country. Having him host that show was a huge part of it. Um, that's when like, you know, Reach became my hero. I started watching millionaire reruns. I've seen that clip of John Carpenter on who wants to be a millionaire at least a hundred times. I watched it again this week. I tweeted out the clip, um, just television magic. It's one of the great television moments you'll ever see scripted or unscripted. Regis is a huge part of that. Um, and after, you know, I fell in love with him as a game show host and, you know, dreamed of becoming a game show host. I started watching him with Kelly Ripa had no idea who Kathy Lee Gifford was. To me, it was Regis and Kelly. It's always going to be Regis and Kelly, no matter who, you know, no matter what bonehead Kelly Ripa is sitting next to in the morning. That is the Regis and Kelly show. Um, and, you know, he was just great. Watched all his appearances on Letterman. And had you had asked me at age 10, as they sometimes did in like yearbooks and things like that, who's your hero? Who's your favorite celebrity? Regis, Regis Philbin. (laughs) Again, when you're 10, there is no self-awareness. There is no shame. You say that with pride. You say that without fear of judgment, without any pushback. Sure, no one that's reading the yearbook knows who Regis Philbin is, but I'm sure the teachers get a good chuckle. You know, when Regis died on Saturday and I, you know, told my friends and half my friends knew who he was actually all but one knew who he was. These were the four idiots I was vacationing with. Um, uh, They were like, oh, yeah, I guess old man. Right. So it happens. (laughs) Uh, He's he has said his final answer, I suppose. 
um uh you know i was very upset i was very upset that they didn't uh mourn his death in the way that i saw appropriate but i did get a text message from my mom um who was very upset and wanted to know how upset i was because she remembered and my dad remembered and my brother remembered um that regis was all that i aspired to and honestly he's kind of all i still aspire to i saw a great observation on twitter this week about Reg uh, in the midst of all of the Shrek clips. And the Shrek clip is great, by the way. <laughs> if you have not seen Regis on David Letterman dressed as Shrek, do yourself a favor. I, I tweeted out the clip. Go on my Twitter at Funny Nico Tweets. Uh, it is truly postmodern art. <laughs> but, uh, you know, while eulogizing Regis, uh, a, a television critic said that he got so much mileage out of being himself and perhaps no one else in the history of the medium has gotten more mileage out of just being himself. He was always Regis. And I think in some ways I I took that lesson to heart, you know, broadcasting being a game show host, quote unquote, is sort of this cliche. It's, it's uh, sort of this caricature to host a game show is to be as artificial as possible. It is a job built for artificial human beings that have a nice smile and can read off a teleprompter. You think of Ryan Seacrest now when you think of game show host. Um, I don't. I don't think of Ryan Seacrest. I think of Bob Barker. I think of Alex Trebek. And I think of Regis Philbin, who all in many ways, but especially Regis, um, you know, just went on the air and did him and he was never not him when you listen to him talk to kathy lee or kelly in the morning like that's how he talked off air and kelly ripa said something to that effect on her show on monday like he was always on he never turned it off he was just your funny uncle and you know maybe he was a bit corny i don't think like anyone is arguing that Regis Philbin changed the course of American comedy. I don't think anyone puts him in the league of Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor, or Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld. You know, he is just a morning talk show host. He is just the host of who wants to be a millionaire, but there is something quite admirable about him just always being him. And although that version is a bit corny and, you know, can deliver a dad joke with the best of them. It's honest and it's sincere and it's credible. And that's what who wants to be a millionaire felt like. That's what America's got talent felt like when he hosted the first season of that show. It's what million dollar password felt like when he hosted one season of that show. It's what the neighbors, a 1973 game show that he hosted for two seasons felt like. This was a guy you trusted. This was a guy you believed. This is a guy you felt like you knew because in many ways we did. And look, man, I'll be damned if I cannot trace a direct line between that very concept and this very podcast. I didn't realize it at the time, but Regis was prepping me for this very medium. He was prepping me for this very craft. 
the art form of being yourself and being yourself well and never taking yourself too seriously and being able to communicate your love for something to a mass audience. That's rage. That's rage. And I was so sad on Saturday. I was heartbroken (laughs) at the risk of sounding even more pathetic. Um, So I I was in North Carolina this week. I was vacationing. um, And a friend of mine wanted to get a Corona test because it's a high risk area down there. Before we came back home, I didn't want to see my family until I had gotten a Corona test. And uh, so we found a walk-in clinic and he went in and I was waiting in the car and I pulled up the John Carpenter clip, the first million dollar winner on who wants to be a millionaire. Uh, And as I said before, I watched that clip about a hundred times at the very least. Um, And I watched it in the car and I I just saw Reege with that look on his face after John Carpenter called his father not for help on the million dollar question, but to let him know that he was about to win the million dollars because he knew the correct answer. And I saw the look on Regis's face, that dumbfounded look that we were all feeling when we saw that episode for the first time, that all of America was feeling the shock, the awe, the just like this fucking guy feeling. (laughs) Um, And I felt like I like, Man, this is going to sound so terrible. I felt like I saw into his soul for about 10 seconds and I began weeping. I began weeping alone in the car in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, because that was my guy. That was my guy. Regis Philbin, dead at the age of 88. Uh, he may not have meant a lot to you, but he certainly meant a lot to me. This is Cultured. We're coming right back. From that song where he mentioned... Thank you to Blood. You want those? Yeah, let's do it. Here it is. This is from Nas. I never brag how real I keep it, because it's the best secret. I rock a vest prestigious, Cuban link flooded Jesus, and Alex watching Kathy Lee and Regis. There we go. That was Regis Philbin reciting some lyrics from the great Nazir. <laughs> Man, I could do like three hours on Regis. <laughs> I would not repeat myself once. I know you don't want it, but I could deliver the goods if you needed me to. Three hours, no water break, nothing. Easy. I give you six. Uninterrupted. No tangents. You want to talk Reg anytime, any place, give me a call. I'm there. Let's get a cup of coffee. Let's sit back. Let's talk some Reg. Some Reg, Phil. My God. There was nothing funnier in the history of comedy than when Regis Philbin shouted his own name. Nothing funnier than that. What are you doing to Regis? Can't you see my name is Regis? was the best (laughs) like along the same lines what we were saying before like no one got more mileage out of being himself there is a rare breed of entertainer that when you look at them they make you laugh like dave chappelle when i look at dave chappelle that guy makes me laugh 
And I don't know what that is besides the fact that he's brilliantly funny and that he's smarter than me and that he's a great sketch comic as well as a great stand-up comic. When I look at that guy, he makes me laugh. When I look at Don Rickles, he makes me laugh. Regis was that like same breed. He was of the same cloth, cut from the same cloth. But it's not because he had a particular look. It's not that he was short. It's not that he was fat. A lot of guys are like that, right? Like something about their physical appearance, something about their essence is innately funny. You know what I mean? Like maybe they have a funny voice. Maybe they have a funny face. Regis didn't have any of that. The joke with Regis was that he was Regis. That's the joke. I could send you a picture of Regis. And again, nothing funny about the guy innately. He's just like a short old Irish man. That's it. He doesn't have a funny haircut. He doesn't make funny faces. His voice, I guess, is humorous. And like, he's not a brilliant stand-up or anything. But you look at him and he's funny because he's Regis. And the act of being Regis is an act of comedy. That is a miracle that, as far as I'm concerned, has been uh, unrepeatable in in American pop culture. I mean, it is truly a unique quality to Regis Philbin. Rest in peace. Anyway, let's move on. Um... (laughs) Uh, I, I want to talk about Taylor Swift, of course, because like who doesn't these days I have listened to folklore about 10 times. I think I'm obsessed with this record. I'm just going to cut to the chase. I think it's an incredible record. Um, I think it is like definitely hot on the heels of 1989 for the best Taylor record of all time. I don't know if it's quite there. I don't know if it will have the staying power. I don't know if it is as great an act of pop music as 1989, but I certainly think this is an artistic evolution that is worth paying attention to. I don't think we had it when red came out or when reputation came out or when lover came out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think folklore is my album of the year. I think before this, it was, probably fiona apples fetch the bolt cutters um but i listened to this again when i was on vacation on thursday night perhaps a bit sleep deprived again i have been in 13 states over 14 days a lot of time in the car a lot of time in the plane three time zones people three time zones and so you know i've been sitting on the beach threw back a couple beers you know and i'm there with my buddy (laughs) and i'm like bro Let's listen to this Taylor record. You and I, baby, let's vibe out to some (laughs) angsty teenage girl shit. Let's just do this. We're here in North Carolina when in Rome, right? Uh, And so, you know, of course, I was waiting for the Kanye record. I was waiting for Donda. I I, I don't know if we're going to get it. Who the hell knows? I mean, who the hell knows if we're ever going to see Kanye West again, frankly. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um... So, you know, I I put this thing on waiting for Donda to come out and, you know, had you had told me at 8 a.m. that morning, 8 a.m. Thursday morning, like Taylor Swift is about to hit her Bob Dylan phase and it is going to happen within the next 24 hours. By the time you go to bed tonight, you will respect Taylor Swift as a lyrical songwriter better than just about anyone else in the world. Uh man, I, I would have ate my own hat to put it in terms that Regis Philbin would understand. 
but it did indeed happen. Surprise album drop. Here's folklore. You know, I have seen modest criticism on the internet. I think for the most part, it has been overwhelming praise from audiences and critics alike. I know Pitchfork kind of gave it a lukewarm review this morning. Uh, We don't trust what Pitchfork says about anything. All right. Just so we're all on the same page here. Just so we all understand the rules here in cultured land. Los Culturinos. Let's just get this straight. Pitchfork fucking tired cultured podcast fucking wired all right we all understand this cool uh the taylor album is amazing i know like some of y'all are sick and tired of like coffee house indie pop uh not this guy give me more of it (laughs) give me more i just want nothing but mellow vibes all night i want to be up till four in the morning crying because like he left her in august you know what i'm saying (laughs) i want to be mourning the last great american dynasty until my my face has run out of tears until my tear ducts are totally depleted (laughs) until my tears ricochet um (laughs) yeah no i'm into it i'm still into it i'm always going to be into it give me a good cry I, honestly, man, you just don't get this high quality of, of like storytelling in pop music anymore. It's just so rare on a Kendrick Lamar album, perhaps, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the track Duckworth on Damn, an incredible act of storytelling. Lana Del Rey, I guess, uh, is a very good songwriter, very good storyteller. Um, I think like we have to put Taylor Swift up there now after this. I've always sort of been a fan of Taylor's songwriting. I don't consider that her greatest attribute. Um, Like the chick really knows how to write a melody, but like her lyrics have always been somewhat underrated. This is just a tour de force, a tour de force of lyrical storytelling. Um, You know, everybody is, is going crazy about this Bonnie Vare song. Um, August is another one that people are raving about. And, you know, I think that's fair. And Cardigan, of course, is the the hit single. Um, but songs like The Last Great American Dynasty is as ambitious a pop track as you will hear this year. Truly. Um, you know, maybe not everyone's cup of tea. I, I tweeted a joke on uh, uh, on Thursday night that, you know, there is no other pop superstar that has the balls to use the word gauche unironically in one of their songs, but I'll tell you what Taylor pulls it off. She pulls it off successfully. Maybe not for everyone, but certainly for me, mad woman, another really good track. Um, this is me trying just, you know, classic Taylor, but I think a a significant step forward on a lyrical level, you know, this is the first great piece of Corona art. (laughs) This is the first great record of the COVID era. Here it is. And in many ways, it is the direct result of the COVID era. Like this is the type of record you make when you're in quarantine. This is the exact type of record you make when you are alone in your home, separated from your producers and your fellow musicians. This is what you make. Just raw emotion. It's you in the house and you are just dealing with shit and you are getting it out like an emotional exorcism. That is what this record is. Um, Some have lampooned this idea online. Again, this is just the devil's advocates among us who uh, 
you know, you can maybe call poptimists on a good day and trolls on a bad day. Um, but people have lampooned this idea that just because it's stripped down, just because it's acoustic, just because there's no key change, it's good. And that's not why I think it's good. I think it's good because it's incredibly poetic. It's incredibly emotional. It's incredibly mature and it's incredibly raw. And I would say the same thing if this record had the fucking uh, slide whistle on it. You know what I mean? (laughs) I would feel the same way if this was, you know, the Beach Boys pet sounds and it was the most overproduced uh, heavy instrumental uh, record that Taylor has ever done. I'd feel the exact same way about it because the lyrics are just that good and great lyrics and great songwriting transcend any genre. Um, It's exactly the type of album that I think people are responding to in this moment. Um, And I think we're going to see more like it. I think I talked about this when Corona started, like what is the great art that's going to, you know, uh, come as a result of this? Like, you know, world war two, obviously there was a big boom in, in art and the cold war and the Reagan administration also led to some great art and like big cultural crises always lead to, in, in my opinion, more raw and honest, uh, cultural works. And, uh, I don't think that this is the last, I think Fiona Apple with fetch the bolt cutters, um, put out something similar, um, and, and, and just as viable. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more stuff like this that reflect our pretty universal feeling of isolation and loneliness and purposefulness or purposefulness. Is that a word? I don't know. I'm no Taylor Swift, man. <laughs> My brain is not the thesaurus that Taylor Swift's is. Just incredible, man. I really loved folklore. I really loved it. Loved the surprise album release element. I know like that's the new hot thing to do. And you know, it's almost a surprise if you don't put it out by surprise, you know, that like (laughs) it's more surprising if someone tells you a month out, like, Hey, I'm putting out a new album and I'm going on the tonight show to promote it. Everybody's like, Whoa, look at Jay Z. What a rebel. So, yeah, of course, uh, it's going to be a surprise release, but just really floored me, floored me. I can't get enough of this record. Last Great American Dynasty, Exile, August, Bad Woman, The One. I think those are my favorite tracks, probably, in that order. Man, The the Last Great American Dynasty is something else. (laughs) That is something else. What a record. Listen to it now. Do yourselves a favor. T Swift is here and she is the Bob Dylan of our time. And no, I'm not joking. This is cultured. We're coming right back. All right. Uh, do we have to do this? I mean, no, it's my podcast, but I still feel an obligation to. I'm sorry. The Emmy nominations came out today um, and we need to. We just need to. Okay. Um, I'm so frustrated. I'm really so frustrated. And it just gets worse every year. And my frustration builds every year. And like, I don't even know why we're paying attention anymore to go back to what Adam was saying. Like, this is the year where celebrities stop mattering. And I also think like, this is the year that award shows stop mattering. Like no one knows what's happening with this industry. No one knows when television is going to is going to resume production. No one knows when film is going to pr- resume production to even discuss the prospect of an award show 
in July of 2020 is just absurd. It's unnecessary. Like, who knows what the Emmys are even going to look like? Is it going to be in person? I assume it's going to be virtual. Will there be acceptance speeches via Zoom? And with movie theaters being in the shape that they're in, like, no one knows if physical movie theaters will even exist six months from now. So the word Oscar should not even be thrown around until January at the earliest. I don't even want to hear your speculation about the Oscar season. All right? So number one, no one knows what the Emmys are going to look like. Number two, award shows are stupid. And number three, the entire Hollywood industry has been shut down with no return in sight. What exactly are we celebrating? But here we are. It's a pageant. It's a silly pageant, but it's our pageant. Emmy nominations. Uh, Here's my theory, and this is not a unique one. Um, This has been actually kicked around for a number of years. In 2009, the Oscars announced that they were expanding their list of Best Picture nominees from five movies to ten movies. This was in the wake of The Dark Knight not even being nominated in 2008. And the Oscars wanted to diversify their nominating list. So 2009, ten nominees. And then ever since then, it has been somewhere between five and ten nominees. Most of the time, it's about seven or eight are nominated for Best Picture. This year, they're going back to ten. Again, the the goal was to diversify the list of nominees, to incorporate movies that people have actually seen, and to not just award the same three or four movies every single year. What the Oscars saw was the adverse effect. By expanding the list from five to ten nominees, yes, you had more movies in the best picture category, but there were less movies nominated across the other 25 categories, or 23 categories, excuse me. Because Oscar voters had more pressure to watch all of the best picture movies and ignored some of the forgotten gems. The more options there are for voters, the more likely they are to coalesce behind one particular movie or one particular television show. When things become fragmented, consensus builds easier. That's the case in politics, too. Like, the more nominees there are crowding the field, the more split the vote becomes, the easier it is for, say, I don't know, a Joe Biden to win the nomination. You know what I'm saying? The same thing, in my opinion, is happening in television and with the Emmy Awards. As more options become available for Emmy voters, the more likely they are to vote for the names they recognize. This has been happening in television for at least the past 10 years, if not longer. I think something like 450 original scripted programs were produced in America just last year. This year, I'm sure the number will be broken. Pretty soon, it'll be over 500. It's only going to get larger as more streaming services get into the game. Um, Netflix was responsible for much of this boom. And Hulu and Disney Plus and HBO Max and Peacock are all going to follow suit. Um, The content creation business is at its most uh, productive, but also at its most fragmented. So that's why when a voter sees a show like Game of Thrones or a show like, uh, I don't know, This Is Us, something they recognize, blackish, they're likely to check next to that name. 
because consensus builds easier the more split the field becomes. And I don't know. I just think that makes for a pretty sad award show. Let's go through the nominees. In the best comedy category, Curb Your Enthusiasm, an awesome return season, a staple of this category. Uh, There is not a critic... (laughs) I think working in America that does not love Curb Your Enthusiasm and, uh, you know, Emmy voters are nothing but predictable. Dead to Me, a Netflix uh, dramedy starring Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. The Good Place on NBC, its final season just aired. Insecure, I'm not sure if it was nominated last year, but uh, one of the breakout hits from HBO over the past few years, Issa Rae um, in uh, in just, just a classic HBO prestige comedy. The Kaminsky Method, you know, (laughs) I'm sick of seeing this show at award shows. All right. I hear my parents watching it in the other room. Uh, You know, that's that's all the Kaminsky Method I need in my life. (sighs) Again, Chuck Lorre, again, please. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a great show. I thought a pretty weak third season. Schitt's Creek, uh, only recently sort of uh, gained uh, s- some critical attention. And uh, what we do in the shadows, a new nominee here. I-, I actually think one of the more surprising nominations, what we do in the shadows based on the Taika Waititi movie uh, had an excellent second season on FX finds its place in the best comedy category. You know, I think in general, this category is, uh, is better than the best drama category. I still think like shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Kaminsky Method, Curb Your Enthusiasm feel grandfathered in. This um, award went to Fleabag last year and it, it felt like a real step forward for the Emmys. And uh, in the years prior, Veep won, I think, three years in a row, something like that. Um, I think not the most egregious category here, but uh, don't worry. Here's the best drama. Your nominees, Better Call Saul, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Killing Eve, The Mandalorian, Ozark, Stranger Things, and Succession. Only one show on this list not nominated prior, and that is, of course, The Mandalorian. (laughs) I will say that thing threw me for a loop. That nomination really uh, jumped off the page this morning when I was reading the nomination list. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, I just think this is a pretty uninspired list. There were a lot of great dramas this year. Normal People um, is is the first that comes to mind from Hulu that I think, you know, deserved a spot on this list. I I think Succession and Better Call Saul are two all-time great television shows, and I will never complain about seeing their name here. But again, The Crown... The Handmaid's Tale. Is anyone watching The Handmaid's Tale anymore? That's my question. Are Emmy voters actually watching these shows? Are they still watching Killing Eve? I loved the first season of Killing Eve, but that show just feels like it was left in 2018. Ozark, I know how to break out season. Stranger Things had a uh, had a bounce back year, I guess. But man, the amount of turnover in this category is so low. And I guess the Emmys were always like this. But I just remember being surprised more by a list of nominees. Uh, I saw a a very astute tweet this morning 
uh, on Twitter that, uh, I mean, of course it's on Twitter. I don't know where else you would see a tweet. <laughs> Another television critic tweeted though, that, uh, that the best drama category has entered its English patient phase where, you know, just period piece shows about royalty or like, you know, civil war dramas or, uh, I, I don't know, just <laughs> biopics about rock stars feel grandfathered in. Like there is now such a thing as an Emmy bait show. Normal people is not that show, but I think the handmaid's tale and the crown certainly is the Mandalorian was, uh, I guess interesting. I'll give it that. I love the Mandalorian and I loved it because it was totally fine. I loved it because it did not scream Emmy, you know? And so that's why this nomination feels a little cheap. In best limited series, you have little fires everywhere. Uh, a show that I heard was not that great, but Reese Witherspoon's in it. So fine, I guess. Mrs. America, again, I heard was okay. Kate Blanchett, star making, not star making, but just movie star performance, uh, star studded cast, FX, Emmy bait, right? Unbelievable. Good show on Netflix. Um, cop drama about, uh, about sexual assault. Unorthodox, another Netflix show that I heard was very good. Have not seen it. Don't really know anything about it, to be honest with you. And Watchmen. Watchmen, which I think we talked about on the podcast. I could not get through the first episode of that show. I, I just found it <laughs> to be too Damon Lindelof, J.J. Abrams mystery boxy. I was just not interested. As soon as I saw the squids falling from the sky, I'm like, no, I'm out. I don't want every show to be like a deep dive into the Wikipedia page. I want to just be able to watch the show and understand it. I don't want to have to have read 13 graphic novels to understand the context behind who Mr. Manhattan is. Hard pass. Watchmen, however, leads the list of Emmy nominations. Um, Maybe I'll give it a shot. People rave about Watchmen. (sighs) All right, fine. I'll do it. Uh, Do I have to go through all of these? Again, these are just like pretty uninspired nominees. Best Actress, you have a bunch of movie stars. Christina Applegate, Linda Cardellini, uh, Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek, Tracy Ellis Ross for Blackish has been nominated a bunch. Rachel Brosnahan, probably the front runner in this category. Issa Rae for Insecure, a welcome addition, and uh, whatever. Same in Best Actor in a Comedy. Anthony Anderson, Don Cheadle, Ted Danson, Michael Douglas, Eugene Levy, Rami Youssef, the only newcomer best actress in a drama jennifer aniston for the morning show i like the morning show and i will defend it to the death fight me fight me internet olivia coleman for the crown jody comer for killing eve sandra o for killing eve laura linney for ozark who i heard was just tremendous on this season of ozark i need to watch ozark why am i not watching ozark that is like Nico, like catnip right there. Why, why, what am I doing? I've not seen a single episode of Ozark. My father loves it. Dads all across America love it. I just ta- spent 25 minutes talking about how much I love Regis Philbin, yet I've never seen a minute of Ozark. What kind of senior citizen am I? Zendaya also gets a nomination for Euphoria, a show with a lot of penises in it. Uh <laughs> Best actor in a drama, Jason Bateman for Ozark, Sterling K. Brown, and This Is Us, Steve Carell in The Morning Show, Brian Cox in Succession, Jeremy Strong in Succession, Billy Porter in Pose. I think Billy Porter won last year, did he not? 
Yeah. Uh, is Steve Carell really the lead in Morning Show? Don't know about that one. A bit of category fraud. This is where uh, the succession train uh, begins to make its presence heard. The momentum is building around this show. If I had to guess, and I'm usually pretty right about these things. I'm usually very wrong about the Oscars, but very accurate when it comes to the Emmys. I think that succession should be treated as the front runner in all of the categories in which it is nominated. Um, and I would not be surprised if Brian Cox or Jeremy Strong won this award. Uh, I, I think it is well-deserved, but there is a glaring omission in this category that we will get to in a minute. Um, best actress in a limited series or TV movie. You have uh, Kate Blanchett, Mrs. America, Shira Haas and Unorthodox. Regina King and Watchmen, Octavia Spencer and Self Made, and Carrie Washington and Little Fires Everywhere. Bunch of women that uh, award shows tend to love. No surprises there. Um, best actor in a limited series Jeremy Irons and Watchmen, Hugh Jackman and Bad Education, Paul Meskel and Normal People, the One Normal People nomination. Really excellent show about teenagers that have sex. Uh, the best of the best, really. Jeremy Pope in Hollywood and Mark Ruffalo, and I know this much is true. Someone explain Hollywood to me. Like, was that a show that people cared about? It got a ton of nominations, and I just don't get it. I mean, I haven't seen the show. I, I know nothing about it. I just know that it's a typical Ryan Murphy, glossy Hollywood drama. <laughs> um, But, like, I was under the impression that it was not critically beloved and did not do like great in the ratings. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Hollywood. I have no interest. I'm just so over the Ryan Murphy thing. I really am. I was never in on the Ryan Murphy thing, but I'm especially out in 2020. I just don't care. I liked feud. Um, I, I never got into American horror story and I did not like the OJ Simpson American crime story at all. I just did not care for it. And I have not watched a single one of his Netflix shows. Hollywood just looked like, you know, the normal Ryan Murphy thing on steroids. And uh, no, I needed to tone down Ryan Murphy. I don't need I don't need him on steroids. That's one guy that does not need to be on the roids. Um, anyway, I don't want to go through the entire supporting list. I just want to point out because there are a ton of nominees in the supporting category. I think this was because of an Emmy rule change where um, they let in a certain number of nominees based on how many votes they received. There is not a set number. So, in other words, if you got over a qualifying threshold um, in, with a certain percentage of the vote, you were allowed in. And I think it was up to 10 nominees in each, each category. So the supporting categories are especially packed. I'm just going to read for you supporting actress in a drama and supporting actor in a drama to make a very succinct point, And then we will not talk about the Emmys until they air on September 20th. Supporting actress in a drama, your nominees, Helen and Bottom Carter for The Crown, Laura Dern for Big Little Lies, Julia Gardner in Ozark, Tandy Newton in Westworld, Sarah Snook in Succession, Fiona Shaw for Killing Eve, Meryl Streep for Big Little Lies, They Couldn't Help Themselves, and Samira Wiley for The Handmaid's Tale. <clears throat> your nominees and Best Supporting Actor. Nicholas Braun in Succession, Kieran Culkin in Succession, Matthew McFadden in Succession, Billy Crudup in The Morning Show, Mark Duplass in The Morning Show, Bradley Whitford for The Handmaid's Tale, Jeffrey Wright for Westworld, and Giancarlo Esposito for Better Call Saul. 
for those of you keeping score at home. That makes one acting nomination in total for Better Call Saul, the best show on television. I've raved about Better Call Saul at length. No need to 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 uh, to uh, litigate that again here. Um, but this is absurd. And I love Giancarlo Esposito. I love the Gus Fring character. It has now become a staple of pop culture for a decade. Gus Fring has been in our lives, right? Uh, this to me is just evidence that Emmy voters don't actually watch these shows. This is all you need to know. Not to make this a big, like, biggest snubs and surprises from the Emmys. I don't mean to do that. I just mean to highlight Bob Odenkirk, not nominated. Jonathan Banks, not nominated. Ray Seahorn, the best performance on the whole show, not nominated for Best Supporting Actress, has never been nominated in that category. This is as clear as day evidence that Emmy voters saw Breaking Bad, remember Gus Fring fondly, and threw him a nomination because they like that performance. Had they actually had seen season five of Better Call Saul, they would realize that Gus Fring plays a menial role in that series, is maybe the sixth lead on that show. There are certainly five better performances. The guy that plays Lalo on Better Call Saul, Bob Odenkirk, Ray Seahorn, Jonathan Banks, and also the guy that plays Nacho on Better Call Saul, whose name I'm blanking on now. Five performances better than Giancarlo Esposito. You know, just stop being so transparent. Just snub Better Call Saul altogether if you want to. You know what I mean? Just don't even nominate it. Don't throw it a sympathy nomination. Don't reach into a hat and pull out a name as if you're actually watching the series. You're not watching the series. You didn't see season five of Better Call Saul because had you had seen season five of Better Call Saul, it would be leading the pack in nominations. It's absurd. It's just ridiculous. Ray Seahorn snubbed yet again. Bob Odenkirk has been nominated in the past. This is his first year without a nomination. Still ridiculous. Meryl Streep is the greatest actress that ever lived, but my God, big little lies. Seriously. Tandy Newton for Westworld. (sighs) That's it. Meanwhile, yeah, El Camino gets nominated in best TV movie, a Breaking Bad movie, which I thought as far as Breaking Bad IP is concerned, the worst two hours of the year. I thought every episode of Better Call Saul was better than El Camino. Whatever. Look, man, we watch as though they mean, they mean something. We watch as though Emmy voters are watching as much television as we are. They're not. We should not expect them to, and we should not take what they have to say seriously. As, uh, as I read on Twitter earlier today, the Emmys have truly entered the English patient phase. Um, and I will be watching and bitching about it along with the rest of you. Um, and it's not going to get us anywhere because, again, we're in quarantine and none of this matters. <laughs> Giancarlo Esposito? Really? <sighs> All right. Um, what else? What else do we have to talk about today? Tenant? No. Later. We'll talk next week about Tenant.
We got plenty of time. Every week there's a new story about Tenet. We'll save it. We don't have time for Matt Damon tonight. Sorry. We'll see if we can fit him in next week. Uh, here, here's all I want to say about Kanye, and then we'll leave. Um, Kanye West is a genius. Kanye West is my favorite musician living, with the exception of maybe Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney. Um, Kanye West is uh, as uh, as exciting and interesting, engaging, and rebellious as any celebrity in the world. Um, there is no one that has had the cultural staying power that Kanye has had over the past 15 years of superstardom. Um, and I, and I don't mean, you know, commercial viability. I don't even mean like musical viability. I, I just mean like as a celebrity and as a person, um, this man never ceases to be interesting. Um, and that is why I will always anticipate his next album or his next tweet or his next interview or his next public statement um, with as much enthusiasm as anything. I, I, I truly think Kanye West is a special human being. And uh, look, he's, he's always going to have a fan in me. And I will continue to discuss him on this podcast because I think he uh, remains relevant. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. He is our last rock star. He's our last American rock star. I do not think he would make a good president of the United States. I think he'd be a bad president of the United States. Although I think it's worth listening to just about any candidate that throws their hat in the ring. And I, although I think Kanye represents, um, you know, a, a, uh, a very legitimate political grievance. And, and that is the, uh, you know, the, uh, the the uh, the tendency of the two party system to take certain minorities for granted, and although although I think this is a relevant issue, I, I don't think that Kanye West is the person to tackle it, and I don't think uh, he is going to be the great unifier that takes down the two party system. As funny as that prospect may sound, all of this is true. All of this can be true. While also acknowledging uh, that mental illness is a real thing. It's a real serious thing that uh, if you haven't dealt with it or someone close to you hasn't dealt with it, uh, you, you really can't grasp the magnitude uh, by, by which it, uh, it destroys lives. And I can only imagine what that does to someone with 40 million Twitter followers. I can only imagine what that does to someone whose life is under a microscope, whose marriage is the subject of tabloid fodder each and every day. Uh, And I feel for Kanye, and I hope that Kanye gets out of this, and I feel for Kim Kardashian too. I really do. And I, and I really hope that he is okay and that his family is okay and uh, that he finds his way out of this. And, uh, and here's the thing about mental illness, right? Um, here's the other thing. Like, it's very serious and it should be treated as such. 
and uh, like the the national discussion around mental illness has never been sufficient. And I don't even think we're trending in the right direction when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's also sometimes used as a scapegoat, and it is sometimes used as a way to uh, attack someone's credibility. And it is sometimes used to question a human being's character. And uh, that is disgusting as hell. It is disgusting as hell when someone uh, disagrees with a mentally ill person and uses their mental illness as evidence uh, to why they are right and why their opponent is wrong. That is a disgusting practice. And it's been done to Kanye in the past. And I, I think it is unfair for people without medical degrees to diagnose someone's mental state based on a few tweets. And I also think it's even worse to use someone's mental illness to advance your own agenda. And I am not just speaking to some trolls on Twitter. I am speaking to some motherfuckers in the White House. This is all true. It can all be true at the same time. Both sides can be guilty of the same problem. Hell, I am guilty of this very problem. And the idea that certain people in positions of power or certain members of the media are using a guy who is clearly not well to advance a political agenda or to perhaps siphon votes away from another political candidate or use a public rant as evidence for their ideology, bro, that's just disgusting. And I'm certainly not going to be a part of it. And I strongly implore you to avoid this practice as well. This can all be true at the same time. Kanye West is a genius. Kanye West needs help. Kanye West cannot be ignored. It's all true. And it would really do us a lot of good to acknowledge the humanity in all of us, particularly particularly the humanity in our public figures, and uh, to not use them as political footballs. That's just my opinion. And also, I really want Donda to come out so we can just talk about the music. Is that okay? Cool. This has been cultured. I love you. This was so nice. Let's do this again. I'm back. Guys, Cultured is coming back once a week. Starting next week. Actually, this week. It's the first week of weekly shows. Next week, I promise, I'll be here. It's the new and improved Cultured. We're going to revamp the format. We're going to experiment with some new things, perhaps some new music. I'm just promising that now on the air without having found any new music. I don't know why I'm making empty promises after just complaining about politicians for 10 minutes. But <laughs> Cultured's back. I want to take this show more seriously. I know, um, you know, I, I've spent just my time doing other things. Uh, I've been writing a lot more. I, I just wrote a, a long piece about Hamilton a few weeks ago. It's on the website. Um, and I was really proud of that. Um, you know, I'm on Letterboxd a lot. I'm writing film reviews on my Letterboxd account. I think I'm at ND Gregorio on that. You can find the link, I think, on my Twitter. Um, but I've been writing. I've been focusing on Two Cents Radio. That's been a show that we've just been having a blast with. Movie Hall of Fame, why is this a thing? Just keep chugging along. 
so I, I really haven't had a ton of time for this, um, but I, I, I miss it. I truly miss doing one mic radio. I miss talking about pop culture. Uh, and so it is going to come back. And I, I just think the, you know, the way we've been doing things traditionally is not sustainable week to week, but fear not. I'm going to solve this problem once and for all. I love you. Go on the website, tmt.media, too many thoughts, media.com for more of my shenanigans and folks until next time. Come back, will you? Because you know what happens here. You and I, we get culture. I love you.